Kaepernick steps up, will try and run to pick it up. He's got a touchdown. Hello and welcome to Sports Talk here in Skinner Hall on the campus of Vassar College. My name is Mac Lederman. I'm the former editor-in-chief of the Miscellaneous News alongside two of my professors slash friends. Are, 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 we there? are we there yet, guys, potentially? It's all I good. So. Yeah, yeah. Uh, okay. <laughs> I just recently reached the threshold where um, uh, Professor Cuffer, I can call him Alex now, so I'm going to introduce him that way. So to my right here, I have Professor Alex Cuffer of the film department, and to my left, I have Professor Justin Patch uh, of the music department. Um, so uh, one at a time, guys, you just want to take a second to introduce yourself, kind of your interest in sports and also your research interests. Sure. Um, okay, so I'll talk just briefly what I teach. I do sort of TV history, film history, um, and now for the first time sort of media studies classes. Uh, next semester I'll be teaching Vassar's first sports media class, fandom and sports media, uh, in the film department and media studies. My research looks at sports media history. Uh, my primary project is looking at college football films. Not so much Hollywood films, but sort of useful films, training films, recruiting films, things like that kind of the detritus of sports film and media history. Um, and I've also written on topics like gambling history and poker, um, basketball history, how it relates to the Hollywood studio system and things like labor within sports. So I'm a charlatan here. Um, <laughs> I, I'm here because I love sports. And uh, growing up, I was an athlete uh, and I feel like some of my greatest life lessons have come from either being an athlete or the 10 years I spent being a soccer official. And so I spent a lot of time listening to sports talk. That's one of my, my great joys is that there are points in time where I don't necessarily have to be listening to music. And so oftentimes when I'm at the gym or I'm out walking the dog, I'm listening to sports talk. And I find that it ties in with my research interests which are on sound and politics uh, quite nicely because there's a, there's a politics in everything that happens in sports media. Um, and so I find myself making these connections between the topics that happen in sports and then my other life looking at sound and politics. That's great. So I'm um, clearly sitting across two guys who are uh, way more qualified than me at this point in time to uh, talk about sports. Um, I've been the sports editor of the Miscellany News, um, have contributed over two dozen articles on sports-related topics uh, largely related to the intersection of sports and politics and social culture. And um, I'm happy to uh, pull two of our leading Vassar experts here in all <laughs> things sports, uh, if you will, or the closest thing we have to that. So um, I think we're ready to just kind of get, get rolling. All right, let's do all this. Right. Um, I think uh, we're going to try to run through a number of topics. Uh, first show, we were just kind of excited to talk about a bunch of different things. Um, but I think a good place to start maybe is with the uh, theme song on this uh, topic as it pertains to recent developments related to the saga of Colin Kaepernick and how he finds his way back in the NFL or how he does not. Um, so maybe worth the start just to kind of run down the timetable of events here um, based on my research. And you guys can feel free to jump in um, because this is a very complicated timeline, and I think almost intentionally so. Um, this is based on the secret nature of uh, his tryouts and, um, you know, kind of the NFL's uh, will, um, desire to kind of cool down the outrage machine as much as possible. But um, from my understanding, based on what I read, there was a, a great article in ESPN Today by Howard Bryant um, detailing the timeline. Uh, so 
Tuesday, November 12th, Kaepernick um, sends a letter to the NFL expressing once again his readiness for an NFL tryout. Roger, DeGale, uh, Roger, DeGale, Roger Goodell, there it is, <laughs> partially motivated um, by the recent business partnering with Jay-Z, um, as well as you know the obvious pressure uh, related to Kaepernick re-entering the field, um, kind of concedes um, to giving him a tryout. Um, this tryout was originally stated to be under kind of the normal circumstances of what an NFL free agent tryout looks like. Uh, you come to a field at a certain time, you toss around the football, you... Uh, meet with scouts you um you know you show them what they're exactly they're looking for under their uh context and um all of this is done in private uh colin kaepernick you know being the uh, person he is uh was not willing to uh kind of succumb to the terms of the nfl and decided to cancel his planned scheduled tryout and hold his own tryout at a high school football field uh, about two hours away from that location um with media present uh he gave a about a 90 second statement post game uh post his trial in which he threw the ball very for, um, very well, I would say. Uh, everyone's seen those videos of him. Can like, I just tossing. add yeah. one small thing here? They scheduled in a particular day, the worst possible day for Kaepernick because scouts, general managers, they were traveling with their teams. So they wouldn't get sort of the actual decision makers from any of the teams. This is one of their big sort of points of contention that Kaepernick was very unhappy with. With the Tuesday schedule Exactly. Tuesday. Yeah, he, he seemed that it was sort of being set up to fail. So that was a big point of contention right away, the exact date it was scheduled, yeah. unlike most pro days. And I think that just goes to show this the density of this conflict between Kaepernick and the NFL. Is like they, these guys can't even agree on the terms of what even a tryout looks like, what, to down to what he's wearing, to what shoes he's putting on, to how he's throwing the ball. Like Everything here is just highly contentious to the point that um, Kaepernick seemed pretty unhappy and um, all interests post his own scheduled tryout in, from NFL scouts uh, diluted incredibly quickly. Um, so um, I'll let you guys talk on this now, but uh, I think the interesting part is kind of the differences of opinion we've been seeing on Kaepernick, even amongst liberal circles. Um, there's more of a split than we have usually. So uh, if you maybe have anything you'd like to say of why we're seeing kind of this different dynamic and reaction than we have in the past. I mean, to me it suggests how much the NFL has won this debate. Um, and what's sort of really striking here is how people you would assume to be sort of more liberal, more progressive, are often justifying the NFL's actions here when they did things sort of very unusually compared to previous pro days, previous way they set up stuff. The NFL sort of won, and it's really sad that people are not taking sort of the underdog role here. Yeah, I think what we're seeing here is is the fact that most people don't understand NFL teams' travel schedules in the season. They don't understand um, how scouting works, and so the fact that the NFL scheduled the day for him to try out, and he rejected it, has a lot of nuance to it that's lost on most people. And I think a lot of the people that really were vocal Kaepernick supporters may not exactly be the people who have a, a really good understanding of the internal team dynamics as far as who can be there to watch the workouts and all that sort of stuff. So there was a, a way in which the cards were stacked against him to begin with. that that outside observers would not necessarily understand. I, I think you're giving too much credit, though, to people like Stephen A. Smith, who should know better, um, but still basically sort of condemn Kaepernick and blame Kaepernick for giving up his chance here. Um, so I have a little bit of a different stance. Yeah, I mean, I think I heard a, a long-scale interview with Howard Bryant about this. Okay. And I think Howard Bryant did a tremendous job with the story um, and basically said, 
you have all these people saying, well, I blame Kaepernick because I can't wear just any old thing to work, and I can't tell my boss where I get to work, so why does he get to? And Howard Bryant said, you know, I think that's misconstrued. Rather than blaming Kaepernick for not conforming to management, why don't you look at Kaepernick and say, hey, man, why can't we all be free? Why can't I be free? If, as long as I'm good at my job, why do I have to kiss the ring as well? And I, like, that point to me was perhaps the most profound point he said. I mean, he went through everything factually, but he said, look, like, the point of this is Kaepernick is teaching us about what it means to be free. And people are so wedded to the way things are that they're willing to overlook the idea of being free and blaming somebody for not conforming. Yeah, I think there's sort of this larger bias towards owners and executive within sports fandom. Like the concerns that, you know, if Major League Baseball owners make a bad signing, if they sign Albert Pujols for too much money, then they can't spend more. There's no salary cap. Just spend as much as you want to need to. We have this assumption that sort of owners and executives have the benefit of the doubt, when perhaps here they shouldn't. Because Goodell, I don't think, has done that much besides make owners money. He hasn't sort of really helped the players, hasn't helped the fans, in ways that somebody like Roselle has. Yeah, I mean, I, just thinking about what happened with the Pittsburgh Steelers-Cleveland Browns situation, and you see Roger Goodell dropping the ball <laughs> again and again. You want to give mean, a little context here? Okay, so I'm talking about the, the, the fight between uh, Miles Garrett and uh, Marquise Pouncey and um, Mason, Rudolph. Mason Rudolph, and I forgot who the third guy is. And the fact that, that you have a, a fight in which one player who, albeit hit another dude with his own helmet, has an indefinite suspension when there is no clause in the collective bargaining agreement for an indefinite suspension. And there is precedent set for the last guy who hit another guy with his own helmet received a four-game suspension. Only two of those games are regular season. The other two were preseason. Wow. And so there is precedent for a four-game suspension for hitting somebody with a helmet. Max Kellerman literally pulled out the book, and there is a rule that <laughs> says if you hit somebody with a helmet, that is a 15-yard penalty. Like, there actually is a, a, a rule on the book about this, and yet Roger Goodell ignored precedent, ignored the collective bargaining agreement, went ahead and fined a bunch of players, and then let Mason Rudolph off the hook, even though Mason Rudolph was the one who basically initiated the fight. Um, and this is, again, I don't want to make spurious assumptions about who Roger Goodell is, but this is not the first time, I mean, think about the Josh Brown and Kareem Hunt situation, or not, not Kareem Hunt, uh, Ray Rice, where Ray Rice got his career ended mm -hmm. for something that Josh Brown got a one-game suspension for. So these sort of inconsistencies yeah. become a real issue with Roger Goodell to the point where you understand why Kaepernick doesn't trust the NFL, doesn't trust Roger Goodell. Yeah, and the problem is they're going to become a bargaining chip mm -hmm. the next time they have a round of contractual negotiations. They're not meant to benefit the league. They're meant ultimately to extract more money from the players. Yeah. Um, I think you guys speak to an interesting paradigm, too, especially if we compare this style of management to the type of management that's happening in the NBA right now, where um, Roger Goodell and the NFL are much more shoot-from-the-hip type reactionary forces, while the NBA, they're getting on, uh, out in front of issues that they anticipate to happen 10 years down the road. 
Um, sort of. Yeah, sort <laughs> of. Mean, at least they're trying. At least they're trying yeah. to. They're trying to look like they're doing that. Um, and you know, hiding behind that, you know, that ability to be reactionary kind of allows him to handle these situations individually rather than us thinking about them in their larger context in some ways. I, I think it's interesting. You raise a really good point, sort of the reactionary thing. The stuff with China and Daryl Morey, how fast has that gone away from the news cycle? That's moved out of there very quickly, where the stuff with Kaepernick has been basically on and off for three-plus years here. I, I think, to me, it's interesting sort of compare to the NBA as well to Pete Rozelle, who had the much longer view here, where he was the one who said that there has to be revenue sharing from TV. So it's not just the big clubs that make money. It's these tiny places like Green Bay. He had this idea sort of, you know, slow things down, think about the long view here. And Goodell doesn't seem to do that at all. And it seems to become this sort of recurring problem over and over and over again. Yeah, and the thing with Daryl Morey that kills me is that Daryl Morey cost his own club, the NBA, and a bunch of other players money. And he has seen no blowback from it. Everybody is saying, you know, Colin Kaepernick cost the NFL money, and there is nothing to back that up. And NFL teams have been staunch about not opening their books to prove that this is the case. Right. And so, again, you get to that point where, like, Daryl Morey cost people money, and he still has a job. Colin Kaepernick, as far as we know, there's no proof that he cost anybody a dime, right. and yet he doesn't yeah. have his job. And so w when... You can't guarantee, you, you can't say, well, the game has moved on, nobody wants run pass option quarterbacks, and then your top two candidates for MVP are Lamar Jackson and um, uh, Wilson. Right, and Deshaun Watson. And Deshaun right Watson, yeah. right? Like, you can't make that argument anymore. You can't say he can't play because he went to a Super Bowl. Yeah. And yet then it becomes, well, he's, he, it's a media circus. Well, there was no media circus when he did his tryout. So all of these ways of discounting Colin Kaepernick have been proven to be wrong. The last part of that is like, oh, well, he cost the NFL money, and yet nobody is willing to, to actually go ahead and prove that. I think this like kind of boils down to a problem of optics in the many ways where like, you know, it's so easy to see a tweet and then this the nature of social media itself to move on once that news cycle kind of fades out where, you know, Kaepernick, um, the, what, he, what he did was his tryout, the goal he was trying to accomplish based on all these details that have largely been hidden or are too complex for you know the sports nerds outside of herself to really understand. It's hard for the casual sports fan to realize what his point was here, why he chose to spoke, what the context of that 90-second soundbite he gave really meant. Mm -hmm. So I think this raises an interesting question of was this we're agreeing that, that what he did was righteous in, in some ways, but was it the right route for him to take there's that old adage, do you work from the outside or do you work from the inside? Was this a situation where he should have kind of succumbed to the ask of the NFL in hopes of landing on a team so his voice could have been even stronger from there? Or do you feel like this was the best course of action for him under these circumstances? Well, here's the thing. So everyone is now celebrating Jim Brown. NFL is doing this big 100-year anniversary celebrating the 100 best players. Jim Brown considered like the best running back of all time. When in the 60s, he was sort of Kareem and Bill Russell and Muhammad Ali for doing the stuff. When people wanted them to stop and sort of just behave, and now we venerate Jim Brown for this stuff. Muhammad Ali, the most beloved athlete in you know, the 20th century, was this really sort of proud advocate. Jackie Robinson, same sort of thing here. And to say he should just sit down and shut up is not quite fair. So I, I think sort of asking that is putting the onus on this one individual guy 
versus this multi-billion dollar organization, when if we think about who we really sort of venerate as athletes, it are these people who sort of tended to fight back and resist these larger power structures. I mean, my feeling about this is Colin Kaepernick didn't hurt anybody in making that statement. Right, him not standing for the national anthem or him deciding to kneel didn't hurt anybody. I don't, I don't know of anybody who got physically harmed by him getting out there and making that statement. Yeah. So, like, what am I supposed to do with that, right? When, when somebody loses their job over doing something that is effectually harmless, there's no way for me to look at that and recontextualize it as, oh, that was terrible. Not a chance. Right? What Colin Kaepernick did was to act his conscience. Yeah. What else is there? Yeah. He's yeah. calling attention to something that he thinks is important. If you have a problem with it, don't buy his jersey. Don't go to Niners games. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. That's I what just, I sort of think. And, and as far as like the, the efficacy of the protest, um, I'm not sure that that mode of protest would have been sustainable over the long term, right? You, you, you do this for a year, you get the hype. At some point, you have to do what Colin Kaepernick ended up doing anyway, which is to put your money where your mouth is and convince other people to do it. And so in that way, I think, um, you know, obviously, like, there are people who've been prison abolitionists for decades, right? I mean, it's going back to Angela Davis in the 60s, right? Um, but I feel like he brought that idea of you know what the penal system does to people who are NFL fans who would have never really thought about that, right? I mean, there's some some real rarefied air when when you're talking about people who were reading about and dialoguing on the prison industrial complex and stuff like that. And I think he brought that to Middle America and buying suits for guys who get out of jail and doing that. So I think his protest was going to go that way anyway. Do I wish he still had a bigger platform? Absolutely because I feel like what he was doing was right and it was the right thing to do. But the fact is, him not having that platform hasn't deterred him from doing it. And that, to me, is maybe a more powerful message that even when the spotlight's not there, he's out there doing this work because he believes in it. And he's been extraordinarily generous with his money and his time, um, and, and it's really surprising. I believe, too, he agreed that he wouldn't kneel or sit down for the anthem anymore. Yeah, yeah. I believe he already said he wouldn't. Yeah. Um, but that doesn't, it's not enough. It doesn't matter. Yeah. I totally agree with all of that. Um, my, my question was, um, do you feel like he should have acted differently under the circumstances of the tryout, or do you think he played his cards as perfectly, or he worked with what he possibly could? I think they were setting him up to fail, and he knew this, um, and, and then sort of made kind of a big deal out of it. Yeah. Um, I, I think he saw a couple moves ahead here, perhaps. He knew the date, he knew what was happening, and he tried to protest it. And it sort of, it did sort of blow up, but I don't know how many other choices he had. Yeah. That's my impression. Yeah, I, f- I feel like it, it, this, this is a difficult one because it's not like, well, if he had done this other thing, then we yeah. would see him on a sideline. We would have seen him on a sideline on Sunday when that's not the case, right? And I think him exposing some of the falseness of the NFL – is important if for no other reason that the collective bargaining agreement runs up, what, in two years? Something like that. And, and I, I hope for everybody's sake, because this is a very violent sport, that the players are able to leverage some of this awareness to get a little more for themselves 
with all the money that the NFL is making, and maybe Kaepernick's impact will be emboldening players on the ground to really ask for more. So I guess, like, looking ahead, um, the Kaepernick story, in my opinion, is not over. Um, given kind of the reactions we've seen um, in the media, um, it doesn't seem likely that he'll find himself on an NFL team anytime soon. Uh, what do you think are the next steps for him from here? And do you have any predictions, potentially? So I, I can certainly see him not being signed this year. It seems like he's gotten zero callbacks, getting attention from teams. But certainly next year, I think he'll, at the start of training camp, he'll be sort of this topic for discussion again. Um, I hope he gets signed. If not, sort of just continue being an activist. I, I don't know. Um, I think he wants to do both. That's my impression. That's the sense I think he gives. I'm hoping he does. But I think what they would need is the league basically to force a team to put him on the roster. And, and historically, teams have been able to do this. If you want a Super Bowl, you got to sign people like this. It's worked that way in baseball, right, where if you want an all-star game, you have to do certain things. Um, and now when teams want new stadiums, that's why they play in London all the time. Mm -hmm. Teams don't want to go. But every team is playing in London, I think, except for the Packers, which are never going to change <laughs> their stadium. Makes sense. Um, but that's part of the deal. I know the Raiders had to agree to play in London a bunch in order to move to Vegas. So I, I think there are ways that a commissioner can sort of pull strings behind the scenes and get players on rosters, particularly when there are 53 roster spots available. Mm. Um, but I don't know. Um, I was sort of optimistic after the tryouts, and it seems to have gone nowhere. So who knows? So I got two predictions. I mean, one thing, I wouldn't mind seeing him go up and play in Canada. Yeah. And, if, and look, Canadian teams are willing to take a chance on Johnny Manziel. <laughs> I think Colin Kaepernick works in the Canadian system really, really well. Right. Only you know uh, about the Canadian system of football. Well, no, I just know a little bit, but it's a, it's a fast-moving <laughs> game. Like, it's a guy with an arm like that, short passes, but very, very fast. Warren Moon played yeah. there for a long yeah, time. Yeah, Doug Flutie Doug did, Flutie, too, yeah. right? So, and somebody who's mobile can move his feet. So that's one thing. And that would be, I also think, if you're a Canadian team, you're going to get a lot of eyeballs if you sign this dude. Yeah. And I think that there, there's a certain game in that um, if, you, if, you, if you're a Canadian team and you want to open up even a sliver of an American market, this would be a great way to do it. Keep in mind, Colin Kaepernick had, like, you know, one of the top ten selling jerseys when he wasn't even in the league anymore. Yeah. So clearly he has a lot of supporters. That's my first thing. Second thing, man, Cincinnati Bengals. <laughs> That's my – I mean, Bengals clearly was it Jeff Driscoll or – not Jeff Driscoll um, – Who's their backup that they have who's just not... I, the one who just got benched. Yeah, who got yeah, benched. Yeah. not working out. Clearly, they're moving on from Andy Dalton as yeah. well. And I was like, man, here's a team that's picked up every dude who was a <laughs> convict. So if you're picking up dudes who were convicts, you might as well pick up that dude that, that had the anthem protest. I actually think he's a really good fit for that team. And with an arm like what he's got, he still he'll get A.J. Green back next year after... You know, having some 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 ankle injury uh, injury problems this year, um, you've got you know a, a couple of nice pieces. You need to rebuild. Nothing helps you rebuild like a good quarterback you can get for cheap, and then go to the draft and get offensive linemen, get wide receivers, get a good tight end. All of these things you can do if you don't have to pay money on your quarterback. I'm guessing that you could probably get Colin Kaepernick for veterans minimum. And if you can get a Super Bowl caliber quarterback for veterans minimum, man, that rebuild gets a lot easier. But that speaking logically, I remember Steve Bashani, the Ravens <laughs> owner, asked the fans, should we sign Kaepernick? And they did not. 
Same thing with Stephen Ross, you know, a Trump donor, sort of debating publicly, should they sign Kaepernick to their, like, garbage pile with the Dolphins? <laughs> and, and they did it. My, my argument is that if Kaepernick had gone to the Jags instead of Blake Bortles, uh, instead of them sticking with Blake Bortles two years ago, they'd, they'd have a Super Bowl ring right now. Because yeah. you put him on that team with that offense and that defense – they're, I mean, I hate to say it because I'm a Pats fan, but they're wiping the floor with the Pats in the AFC game. I, I agree it logically makes <laughs> sense, but at the same point, think about who the Jets were playing as, at quarterback yeah. this year, and they could have signed this guy for nothing. Mm. Think about the Miami Dolphins. Yeah. Like, they've had, what, Josh? Do they have Josh Rose? I don't even know. They had they, Ryan exactly. They have who they have. And, yeah. and they're terrible, <laughs> terrible. Right, and they could have had Kaepernick. So it, it certainly would have made sense logically. But they still don't do it. The Bengals could have signed him this year. It's not like Dalton was, you know, Aaron Rodgers beforehand. Yeah, no, no, it's true. I, you I knew totally what you agree. were getting with it. Logically, Dalton. it makes one hundred percent sense. But I think sort of the politics of ownership, in particular, and like this fear that Trump will tweet at you, is sort of keeping them out. It, of course, it doesn't make sense. These yeah, guys no, are does all it, richer than Trump. And well, this uh, the thing is like Trump can tweet all you want. It, it, look, you know what? Tr- what beats everything? Dubs, man. Yeah. You go out there and you win games, suddenly everybody forgets everything if you're out there winning games. The fact that I, I don't know if the Bengals will go from 0-11 to winning games with Cap. But, 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 <laughs> but think about like how much hype there was about the Browns when they won six games yeah, in a season. That's right. Six games because they went from zero <laughs> to six. And you would have thought that they had like, you know, won the, the championship the way that people were just talking about the Browns. All you got to do is get an 0-16. I mean, I'm not saying the Bengals are going 0-16, but they certainly look like they're they trying. Might, yeah. To get an 0-16 team and win four games <laughs> in that city, you'd be riding high. Speaking of a team that was close to that or near that, um, just from like kind of a pure fantastical standpoint, I think um, story-wise, Colin Kaepernick would fit on a team much like the Detroit Lions in some ways. Yeah. Uh, just based on like the story of that city and um, issues surrounding urban renewal and kind of the pure white flight gutting of that, that would be an, you know, an excellent story to have kind of a rough-and-tumble uh, comeback story like there in that city. Well, and him coming out of Milwaukee, which is the most segregated city, major city in America, a part of the Rust Belt as well. Yeah. So there is something to be said for that. Um, and the Lions are another team that are kind of a garbage fire right now. Or, you know, the Bears, too. Like, you think about how many spots. Are, there's, like, five teams that couldn't use him. Think about the Bears, what they're doing. You have somebody like Trubitsky, and even if they don't want to give up on him, have somebody like Kaepernick as a cheap backup. Yeah. Uh, well, you heard the Chiefs came and looked at him. Yeah. Because with, I mean, with Andy Reid and with um, Pat Mahomes, any backup quarterback you get requires an entirely different setup right. because nobody does what Pat Mahomes can do. The guy is just freaking nature, right? Colin Kaepernick is not a bad sort of Pat Mahomes light, mm-hmm. and it buys you a lot of wiggle room when it comes to, hey, you know, this guy did have a couple of injuries this year. We do need to plan for this because he plays so aggressively. Yeah. Colin Kaepernick would be a great back up in that situation. I, I agree. And, and I think you need it does help to have a coach who's established and who will yeah. be there for a long time and who realistically won't be fired anytime soon. Mm-hmm. Where like the Lions have, you know, yet another failed Patriots assistant or o- mm-hmm. overrated Patriots <laughs> yeah. assistant. Where I don't know if Patricia has the same sort of leash that Andy Reid does. And Andy Reid is like the quarterback whisperer. Mm-hmm. Um, he was like in Green Bay for a while and he did a lot of good stuff. So you need somebody like that who's not going to be fired anytime soon. Um, I think the Raiders, too, would make a lot of sense. 
Gruden is another one who's done a lot of good work with quarterbacks, New City, things like that. But yeah, if we're talking talent-wise, probably all 30, 32, 30 teams makes makes absolute sense for Colin Kaepernick. I think the crux of the issue here is the amount of pressure that fan base yeah. will put on the organization to not only see him potentially be on the field right away or to show wins or some level of utility or pro- productivity right away, or else you're going to have fans coming back to be like, "Hey guys, like what are what are we doing here? Like what's the message? Why why us?" Yeah. Didn't Kaepernick play his college ball in Nevada? Yeah. Yeah, so actually getting with the Raiders as they're going to Vegas <laughs> actually that seems like a storyline in and of itself, it's right? True, yeah, Chris Holt. Uh, that'd be a good idea. Of course, it's not going to happen. Yeah, well, but I mean, it would just make too much sense. Oh, that would be so fantastic, though. <laughs> so fantastic. I think it's needless to say, though, that like storyline, not just ex- pure exes, will be a factor of any team that right. chooses to take another look at Colin Kaepernick, which is kind of an interesting added addition to uh, you know the pearls and the. You know, the problems of free agency that we've seen with players like Carmelo Anthony and many others, the fact that they have this storyline attached to them that's preventing the signing in the first place. Mm-hmm. Um, but we can uh, dive deeper into that um, maybe a little later, but um, I think maybe we should move on to discussing a quarterback who currently is in the NFL right now, <laughs> um, and Lamar Jackson, who in many ways is kind of remaking the entire landscape of what pro football looks like. Um, uh, I think the the stats and the highlights speak for themselves. A the final score last night, a forty five six win over the Los Angeles Rams, thrown for five touchdown, rushing for ninety five yards, and just really dominating the football from start to finish. Um, you know, um, Lamar Jackson just as a general type of subject. I don't need I need to kind of elaborate on that question anymore. But uh, you know, just uh, let me know what you guys your guys' thoughts are. Man, like. I love Lamar Jackson. I've been team Lamar Jackson since he was in Louisville, if for no other reason than he is one of the most fun people to watch play the game. And that's saying a lot coming from Louisville, which is typically not a very fun team to watch. But the guy's just, he's, he's a monster, right? He's so big, so fast, so talented. He has clearly a very steep learning curve if you look at his first game off the bench after they, they uh, started him for Joe Flacco to where he came back in the fourth quarter and almost beat a very good Chargers team. And then the first what, 12 games of this year has just been off the hook, mm-hmm. right? It's got to be record-setting, right? Oh, yeah, like it's crazy. He's, he's had, what, two or three games with a perfect rating. Um, it's, it's unbelievable. And the, and the thing that, that I think about with him is that he can throw fewer than 20 passes a game, and it never, like, you never hear grumbling from his receivers. Like, you remember when Stefan Diggs didn't feel like he yeah. was getting the ball and, like, didn't even shout in the locker room, just got in the car with his work clothes and bounced because he didn't <laughs> want to talk about uh, Kirk Cousins? Like, okay, you don't see any of that with the Ravens, and this dude is throwing, like, 20 passes a game. That is unbelievable to me that so many of his teammates have absolutely bought in to a team that's based on the athleticism of this one guy who is all of 22 or 23 years old. Like, that is, that speaks to both his character and also to that coaching staff that really made all of this happen. And uh, yeah, I, I absolutely think Lamar Jackson is the beneficiary of one of the NFL's better organizations. But also, like, Lamar Jackson's a beast. And, like, he, he's making people – he's another one of those guys where people will watch 
the Ravens game who could not care less about the yeah. Ravens just because they want to watch him play. I think there's so few NFL players like that. The NBA you have, oh, yeah, right? You'll absolutely. turn it on to watch Steph Curry or LeBron, but the NFL, I don't know how often you have that. Just one person who's so transcendent. Mm -hmm. And I think you're absolutely right. Like, how many other, how many skill players can you name on the Ravens? Mark Ingram, Mark. and that's mostly... Only, only because he talked about Lamar Jackson, right. that mm -hmm. kind of viral flick, uh, clip calling him the MVP. That's why we know who Mark Ingram is. I was going to say because he won a Heisman, too. Yeah. Um, uh, his father was a Patriots. So, yeah, that's you know. <laughs> um, But I, I think, so there's a couple things. A, you see the redemption of Heisman Trophy winners. Yes. Like, all these guys in college win Heisman trophies, and nobody gives a shit. Think about someone like Troy Smith out of Ohio State. <laughs> you know, all these players who are like, you want a Heisman, you're going to get drafted in the sixth round and disappear. And now they're like, they're really successful. You have uh, Robert Griffin, you have Mark Ingram, you have Derrick Henry on the Titans, all these guys who win Heisman. Turns out to be really good. Johnny Manziel's kind of an exception. But I think what's really interesting, too, is sort of Harbaugh willing to tailor everything to Lamar Jackson where you have a coach who's been around now for, what, at least a decade, mm -hmm. who's smart enough and amenable enough to really sort of move around his scheme to sort of get the most out of this incredible talent. And I think most coaches aren't smart enough to do that. One who is is Belichick. Mm -hmm. And he comes off like this surly jerk, but he's really smart in sort of moving around the right pieces and taking advantage of particular talent and being flexible. And I think Harbaugh here is doing sort of the same thing. We have this really sort of unusual package of talents, and he's really sort of exploiting it to the benefit of the team. Yeah, not to throw the Duke Ellington comparison into this, <laughs> but they always say, like, Duke used to write his arrangements not for particular instruments but for particular players huh. because, you know, Johnny Hodges and Cootie Williams and all that had particular strengths within the instruments that they played. And I think... When you're look, talking about Belichick and Harbaugh, that's how they run their teams, is based on the particular strengths. Um, and you see that with Lamar. What I really want to know is what Lamar Jackson looked like in practice his rookie year that would have made Harbaugh think a year from now we are absolutely redesigning everything. I mean, he must have just been a monster in practice to, to make an entire coaching staff say, we're gonna make. We're gonna change the scheme. We're gonna, you know, look to draft whatever to, to pieces yeah. to put around this guy. They went out and got Seth Roberts and Hollywood Brown. You know, a lot of speed on the edges, stuff like that. That, like, man, it everything works. It's amazing. That whole machine is just. It's beautiful to watch them play. Yeah, and again, it was forty-five to six, and the Rams are a decent team, yeah. and they only gave up two field goals. The other team which did that, too, is the Chiefs, mm -hmm. where they have Alex Smith, and then they get sort of Pat Mahomes, and pretty soon, he's right in there. Yeah, and, you, and if you look at the way they've done the same thing with their receivers, they got four guys who are running 4-4 four, four or below right. in their 40s, so they put a lot of speed on the yeah. edges to really you know, push the safeties back, make sure that you have to go over the top, and it opens up you know, the edge. If, I mean, Lamar Jackson pretty much gets the edge every time he decides to run, which is crazy. It's absolutely crazy. I think the Chiefs did it too, where they would get like these cast offs like Sammy Watkins, mm -hmm. right, who was really a high draft pick for the Bills, didn't do much, goes there and is amazing. Yeah. It must suck to be a safety right now in the NFL. Oh, my God. With all these sort of, you know, running quarterbacks just going nuts, this whole generation of them. Well, that and, that, and you have every team. It used to be you had one guy who was running a 4-2 or 4-3-40. <laughs> now you've got, you know, 
your your entire four wide receiver core running four two four threes, <laughs> and your like six foot eight tight end is running a four five. Yeah. Like, what do you do? <laughs> like, there's there's no way to do this. I mean, I I kind of wonder if you're going to start seeing DBs getting smaller again, just because that speed. Right. But if you're a small DB and you try to challenge somebody like Lamar Jackson, line, yeah. you're going to start bouncing off. Yeah. Uh, it, and I think, too, he has the size. Even compared, Like Russell Wilson, this was like the big narrative. He's too small. Mm-hmm. Obviously, he sort of proved that all wrong. But I think size is becoming a little less of a factor as well. Lamar Jackson is not huge. He's, a, he's, he's like 6'2", 215. Yeah. Bigger, but well, not I mean, like Compared to me, man, everyone's big, so, you know. <laughs> but you're probably faster than him, probably. You know, <laughs> even, even in my best days, I don't think I was faster than Lamar Jackson. <laughs> Fair enough. I just think what we're seeing here is just the increased success of human development. The fact we're seeing seven-foot basketball players jumping from the foul line over and dunking in the rim. We're seeing guys like Lamar Jackson. Like, there's this constant evolution of what skill looks like and the willingness to accept skill for skill and then work around it is kind of what I think is most fascinating to me about this story, this acceptance of that. That happened in the NBA maybe about around five, ten years ago, but is now finally happening in the NFL as well. Yeah. Yeah, the other thing, too, is, like, you think about uh, what Parcells said about uh, Lawrence Taylor. And, you know, he was telling Lawrence Taylor what to do, and Lawrence Taylor wasn't doing it, but he was getting these interceptions at a time when linebackers didn't get interceptions and getting sacks and all these things. And eventually, like, I remember Bill Parcells talking about and there was a point when Lawrence Taylor was supposed to rush the edge and drop back into coverage and got an interception. And as he was walking off the field, Bill Parcells said, you know, was yelling at him, like, that's not what you're supposed to do. And Lawrence Taylor was like, didn't I make a play? And he was like, there was this light that went on with Bill Parcells where he literally would scheme up 10 out of 11 guys and let Lawrence Taylor do whatever he was going to do. And I think that we're getting to a point where obviously football is much more technical now, so you don't abandon a scheme, but you also let really athletic guys go out there and do what they do best. And that's the thing. I mean, Lamar Jackson is reading defenses um, in a way that for a guy who's only a second year for his first full year as a starter is very impressive. He sees the holes. Yeah. He seems to to make really good decisions. His long ball looks really nice. I mean, he dropped one ball over the shoulder. I forget who it was to, but it was like perfect, right? And he is making all the right decisions every time, which is amazing. Right, and, and historically, defenses have had a bit of an advantage because they have 11 players sort of attacking where offenses only have 10 because you knew your quarterback was going to stay there. So you'd have 10 options versus 11, and defense has always had that edge, but the ability now where he could go through his progressions, and if it's all sort of locked up, can do something, right? Extend a play, do whatever it is, is this amazing sort of tool to have. The question will be if he sort of starts taking really tough hits. Yeah. And I saw a couple times he was smart and got out of bounds instead of trying to go for like two, three yards. So Mm -hmm. I think that will come, um, especially with like walking object lesson Robert Griffin behind him. Yeah, he did take a couple of licks last night where I was like, man, you should have just gone out of bounds. Yeah, Um, and and hopefully he'll get smarter. Aaron Rodgers has gotten smarter with that as well, and they'll slide a lot earlier where they'll sacrifice Mm. a couple of yards. But I think this willingness to use the quarterback as a weapon with the, you know, assumption perhaps he'll get hit, Mm. it's okay. They're much more willing to do this. It's really changed. I mean, I'd wrap this guy in bubble wrap if I could for, if I was that team, he's like, 
you know, we thought Patrick Mahomes, we thought he was that transcendent guy. The mm. fact that we can have multiple players like this coming onto the scene in sh such short order, I think, came as a surprise to everyone, maybe except uh, Justin Patch, who's saying that he <laughs> saw Lamar Jackson um, all the way through. <laughs> we'll, 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 we'll let him live with that. Um, ten out, nine out of ten of his predictions are wrong, but uh, I'll, I'll, I'll seed this one to you, uh, JP. Um, so, yeah, maybe we can uh, move on to uh, something else. Uh, we talked about greatness. Uh, now we can talk about um, the opposite of that and maybe dive a little bit into the Golden State Warriors and this complete other collapse of this franchise. Um, very obviously and very optically, I believe they lost to the Dallas Mavericks by over 40 points the other night, uh, which if you asked any of us, um, you know, most people, if they were seeding anything about the Warriors, they, they were seeding that they would be a bottom se playoff seed in the Western Conference. Now it seems like the Warriors are rivaling the Knicks for the worst story of the, N of the NBA season. So um, I think what's interesting about this to me is just kind of just other switch between a team that was you know, finally established and known as a dynasty um, with all the uh, negativity and or positivity that comes around with it. I don't think I've ever seen a complete and other collapse to this extent um, in basketball, particularly um, before. Um, I don't know, would you, would you guys have anything to say about kind of what we're seeing right now with the Warriors? Well, I, I don't know if you'd call the Cavs a dynasty, but when LeBron leaves, like it's a 40-game swing. Um, you see this a lot in college football, mm -hmm. with like USC with Pete Carroll and like the dominance that they had for years. They were so good. Pete Carroll, there's sort of uh, investigations that are opening up, and then he goes to the NFL, and they still haven't recovered. Oregon, not quite national championship, but under Chip Kelly, really, really good, sort of top five every year. He leaves to go to the NFL because of investigations. They collapse as well. But I think basketball, it's the power of sort of these super-duper stars. And, like, they, they make these, like, 20, 30-game swings seem so easy. Mm -hmm. And then with the Warriors, you have a couple of sort of injuries as well, and now they're just comically bad. Um, I don't know. It'd be interesting to see what happens to, like, the Pats, mm -hmm. which have been so good for, what, a decade? Two decades. Two decades now. They're going to collapse, but what exactly it will take, I think, is an interesting question. Well, I mean... Not to make this about the Patriots, but remember the Patriots went to the Super Bowl in the 96-97 season right. as well. So it's more than two decades. Was that the one they lost to the Packers? Yes. Okay. I'm out about just, that. Just but wanted to start double you know. checking. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, the thing about it is, like, there was so much chatter about, oh, what can we do to make the NBA more fair? All these things, you know, it's going to be a couple of teams who are just running everything. It's horrible for basketball. And I think people who, would, who were paying attention last year realized that that absolutely wasn't the case, where the Bucks and the Sixers, the Celtics, like you had, I mean, quietly the, uh, the Blazers up in Portland were a good team, the Utah Jazz, like there's always these teams floating around. Um, and so it's not surprising to me that, yeah, when you have four starters, either you like get injured. Yeah. I don't think there's a team out there that can deal with four starters getting injured and survive the problem with, that they have is with the salary cap, those four starters eat up so much money that then you don't have money for backup players, even if there is a lot of talent out there between the G League and Europe and all that. There's no shortage of good basketball players that can fill out the back end of a roster. I, I'm not sure if I'm all that concerned. Obviously, I don't wish the Warriors ill. I, mean, I, I enjoy watching them play. 
But at the same time, like this is part of the cycle and this is part of what makes the NBA so much fun is that you can turn on a game between like the Atlanta Hawks and Milwaukee Bucks and you can get an amazing basketball game. And there's nothing about that that's ever bad. I think going off that, I think this to add on to what you were saying, I think this collapse speaks to two new paradigms that are kind of um, emerging in the NBA. One, just the strength of talent, especially at the top base, how, you know, as you said, one player, two players can really determine the makeup of your entire team. And two, just the amount of strength throughout the league right now. You look at a team like the Phoenix, Phoenix Suns, who came out of nowhere, just happened to be well-coached. Like, any team out there has the talent necessary to win on any given night right now, which is um, something I feel like we haven't really seen in recent years of course but um i think it just goes to show the amount of work all these guys are in and how the game and just the pure talent level and the depth of this talent level is not only growing from the top 10 select guys up but also all the way down into the bottom end of the league as well but i think now so like Kawhi's is a really interesting case study right he goes to the raptors for a year they win the championship and now he left and they're okay but they're never going to win a championship the Bucks are pretty damn good. They were the best team. They had the best record in the league last year. Giannis leaves. They may be a playoff team, but they're never, ever going to win a championship. So I think you need, like, this group of, I don't know, 10, 12 players to have a realistic shot. You have the playoff chances, but to sort of actually be a true contender, you need sort of, like, this very elite all-star level group. And now it seems like you need multiple ones yeah. with that. Um, and the concern is, so, you know, I'm from Milwaukee, so I'm sort of a, a Bucks fan. I'll say I'm sort of qualifying it because for years they were terrible. Yeah. Like, they had nobody. Um, no offense to, like, Sam Cassell and Glenn Robinson. <laughs> but nobody would ever come there in a million years. So they get Giannis for the draft, really smart drafting. But if he leaves, then what happens again? And this is sort of the problem. The Lakers got LeBron, which brought them Anthony Davis, for no reason. They were exceptionally poorly managed. But the fact they're L.A., I think, sort of drives people kind of nuts. Same thing with the Clippers, by the way. Probably the worst-run one, worst run franchise in basketball for years. Until what's-his-name got out of there. Yeah. But, it, like, they're rewarded for sort of their incompetence just because they're L.A. Um, or at least the Warriors mostly did it through the draft. Yeah. So it's an interesting sort of dilemma. I'm coming at this from, like, the small market fan. Mm -hmm. The Brewers, same sort of thing. They get this trade with Christian Yelich, awesome. They have a small window, though, where the Yankees and the Red Sox are good in perpetuity. Yeah. We're, we're dealing with this switch where like the, the power of the general manager is kind of flipping with the power of the player in many ways, yeah. where you know, they're going one and two in that scenario now. And um, you know, the player determines whether you win the championship. But when it comes to crunch time down in the playoffs, like, you need that veteran presence. You need the guy who's going to knock down the open three in the corner. You need the guy who's going to lock up the third best defender on that team because that's how you win playoff basketball the strength of the talent from the top down you know like every team has a great player every every team that's competing for a championship has the mvp to get them there or the mvp caliber player it's i think this year the interesting question is who can offer the support needed to make that player capable of playing to all their strengths yeah I think injuries, too, are always sort of, you know, this role of luck. The Lakers are amazing right now, but if LeBron or Anthony Davis is hurt, who knows? Yeah. Um, and we see this with the Warriors, where it's just luck. That's all it is in some ways, right, where you have all these really bad injuries in a row. Yeah. Um, they would still be really good without Durant. So. Well, they were good before they, they got him, yeah, right? Yeah, so, right. but, but when you lose Clay, Steph, and Draymond yeah. 
Like, you, you don't have anybody left. Right. The Vassar basketball team could probably hold <laughs> their own against them. I mean, if we had, if we even just had Draymond, we would uh, win the Liberty League like maybe like twenty five times in a row until <laughs> that guy's fifty years old. So. Yeah, yeah. Uh, hopes and dreams, man. Hopes and dreams. <laughs> um, we there's there's plenty more to talk about. I guess the last question I have here with the Warriors is, um, why sports fans can never be just happy? Because when the Warriors are good, um, you know, like. Justin, Justin can admit that they're just fun to watch play, but um, we're always rooting against them. And now, like, take a team like the Miami Heat where LeBron was uh, uh, when LeBron was on it. Like, we open YouTube and watch those highlights now with like absolute delight. I'm sure it'll be the same way with watching the Warriors move the basketball now in that kind of online enshrinement. But um, sports fans uh, right now are kind of unhappy to see the Warriors fans collapse so much. But when they're so good, we, we love to hate them. Why do you think, um, I know this speaks to some of the research and the work you do, um, Alex, uh, why do you think this kind of, this cycle of dissatisfaction is kind of the continuum here? I think a lot of it actually does come down to, like, fandom, where it's not having anything against the players, but, like, these insufferable fans, to bring it back to the Pats, (laughs) right? The Pats fans are the worst, perhaps only followed by the Red Sox fans. I'm going to say this, I was going to school in Worcester in 2004 when the Sox won the title, and, like, the amount of entitlement within, like, one year is just the worst. Um, and they would always say the Yankees are the real villains, where people like me be like, you have the second highest payroll in baseball. Stop. Mm-hmm. Same thing with Miami, right, where, like, these fans don't show up to games. LeBron, Dwayne Wade, and uh, Chris Bosh come. Now they're, like, the most dedicated fans. So I think the fans start to get a little full of themselves, and other fans perhaps sort of react to this. And then the other players and coaches get sort of enveloped in this. And I think, too, it becomes sort of boring when you see the same teams over and over again. We like it. I think it was sort of great with the NBA when the Raptors were there, right? A new team who's never been there before has this new chance to sort of celebrate. And what do you see at every game when you watch it? Like the, what was it, outside the stadium? Oh, uh, uh, something Park, Jurassic Park. Yeah, Jurassic Park, where you see, like, this excitement and enthusiasm and if you compare that even to, like, the Warriors now, they moved to San Francisco with these high, you know, box prices and all this stuff. So there's, like, an in- sense of entitlement that just comes from eternal greatness that I think other fans get a little irritated by. Well, but, but I think the fans that we all love to hate are Fairweather fans. Yeah. Right? I mean, you talk to some, like, fans of you know, like the Celtics or something, and the guys who are talking about Bill Russell and that stuff, and you're like, okay, that's legit. If you've been with the Celtics in the good years in the 60s and through the 70s and then those really bad years when after Len Bias died and that team just collapsed and that team was awful. But there's some old heads that I know from back home that they, they are Celtics fans do or die. And so those fans are never the most annoying. Right, the most yeah, annoying ones are the ones that jump on only when the team is good, and then they sort of get out of dodge when the team is bad. Yeah. Right, and I think when it comes to the Warriors, I think the 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 fans that everyone loves to see suffer are the ones who had no idea about the Baron Davis teams from the '90s or Latrell Sprewell team. You know those yeah. things, right? If you if you coming at me talking about well Latrell Sprewell when he was a Warrior, hey man. I give you respect for that. Yeah, that's right. right. <laughs> and then, like, I, I understand it's difficult when you've waited for so long for your team to be good, and then they're there, and then they fall apart. I get that. But I don't think it's those fans that people love to watch suffer. 
I mean, in the larger context of all the Silicon Valley uh, types who sit courtside at the Warriors game, if in the larger context of the last five years, if they have to be sentenced to one year of watching Jordan Poole and Eric Pascal right. shoot <laughs> step-back threes, I think we'll all uh, walk out of here with maybe just a little bit of justice. Well, it's sort of classist, right, that you're sort of in Oakland when the team is terrible, then you move to San Francisco, and now you suffer for it, right? You left behind sort of the lower-class fans. With baseball, it was often sort of very gendered, right? The Red Sox get really good, and you see the complaints about the pink hat brigades, right? Mm -hmm. All these women wearing the pink Red Sox hats. And this became sort of part of this complaint, the fair-weather fans, but it was often sort of predominantly women. And so, like, the notions of class and gender here become really interesting. Think about, like, anti-fandom. Well, when you think about Pats fans, like, the first Pats game I ever saw was in Foxborough Stadium. And old Foxborough Stadium was a little like going to Packer Stadium now, right? It was cold out, and there were dudes with no shirt on that had been drinking all day. It was a little bit like going to see Buffalo, right? It was crazy. And so when, when Robert Kraft bought the team and did Gillette Stadium and sort of rebranded the Patriots as being a family-friendly thing, and they got the shopping mall. And it's interesting, man. People will say, like, on one hand, they miss being around fans who understood the game. And, like, you are quiet when the Patriots have a third down and you're loud as hell when the other team has a third down. Like, those sorts of dynamics that were known when you're with people. But some of those guys will also say, but, man, I would have never brought my family to Foxborough. Like, that was a guy's day at Foxborough. You, just, you don't bring 10-year-old kids there. Like, <laughs> they just won't be the same afterwards. So there's a point to where, like, what kind of sports fandom do you want? Do you want this sort of sports fandom that only certain people should really be a part of, or do you want to be inclusive? And you have to sort of think about what those dynamics are going to be. Yeah. I'm guessing the Clippers get Kawhi and PG, and the cost of tickets has probably gone up tremendously. Yeah. They're better, but I bet you could have gotten them for 15 bucks five years ago, where now it probably cost you 200 bucks to get in the door. So it's a really interesting sort of what do you want out of fandom, and I think the answer is everything and nothing all at once. Yeah. And that does bum me out a little bit that some tickets are so expensive. I mean, I got tickets to go see uh, Anthony Davis play uh, with, the, with the Pelicans. I think I got the ticket for $35. And that equivalent seat, if I had gone to see the Celtics play, would have been 115 120 yeah. right? And it's just, you know, you're stuck with the nosebleed seats. You've always got bad, you know, that kind of thing. And to a certain extent, I think that hurts fandom if not anybody who wants to go can go see the game. And that's, I think there are class implications oh, yeah. written into hating on particular fan bases. Well, you see with the Yankees, right? Probably the team that's easiest to hate. When you watch them on TV, what do you see in the background? All these empty luxury box seats, because they don't care. These seats that cost, what, 2,500 bucks a game, they're 80% empty. It's such a waste, yeah. but they don't care. I know I used to, like, we got tickets. I was in D.C. with my wife, and we got tickets for 35 bucks to see a Nationals game. Mm -hmm. When they weren't very good, but those sort of amazing seats. Yeah. And it's, you know, and then you're sitting with the true fans. People just like to be at the ballpark, where for the Yankees it just doesn't matter. So it's easy then to sort of hate on them because of that. I think what's interesting about what both you guys said is the two teams you mentioned of having cheap seats, maybe not anymore. Like the yeah. Pelicans, there's that, <laughs> there's that viral video of the whole uh, ticket office celebrating in mass yeah. after drafting Zion Williamson. <laughs> 
And then with the Nationals, who just won the World Series, you have all the big wigs on the hills suddenly coming out to the stadium in their national hats. Right. So no team is really like, even these small markets, like they're just one guy away from completely selling out in the same fashion. And you know, are, are fans going to be internally unhappy even more moving forward because of this? Is it going to become more of a segregated divide between different populations of fandom? How does that look like? How do we rally around teams anymore? even after a championship or within a parade. But here's the thing. Live attendance matters far less than TV revenue. So that, that is important. Live attendance is nice, but teams make their money off of TV. Yeah. So that will always yeah. be sort of the dominant you know, emphasis right now. Mm -hmm. I think we're kind of reaching towards the end of our show here. Um, I just want to know from you guys before we sign off, maybe you can tell me what the most fascinating storyline in sports for you is moving forward in this week. Okay, so real quick, there was sort of a protest at halftime of the annual Harvard and Yale College football game, sort of climate change protest where a bunch of students went onto the field and delayed the second half by, I think, about 45 minutes. Um, this really taps into this very long history of using sort of college football as this very prominent platform for protest, both by players and by students, and often how unsuccessful it is. Um, one thing that I immediately thought of when I heard about this is from 1969, what was known as the Wyoming 14. 14 African-American players on the Wyoming football team wore black armbands the day before they had a game with BYU. And they were protesting sort of the Mormon church's discriminatory policies, particularly towards African-Americans. Instead of talking to the coaches or the coaches talking to the players, they kicked all the players off the team, the ones who wore the armbands. Became a big scandal. Uh, historians like Michael Oryard have talked about how it really set Wyoming football back for decades, right? Because why would African-Americans go there? Why would they take it seriously as an option if you have any other, you know, places to play football? So you see how rare it is for protests to really sort of work in the context of collegiate athletics, particularly in the context of collegiate sports. It's interesting here how it's framed as this protest at Harvard-Yale, but had nothing to do with the teams or any of the individual players here. So it's this long history that we could talk much more about later, but to me that sort of taps into this much, much larger history about race and college athletics and how little progress has been made in this regard when it comes to using it as a platform. Like for me, even though the story is you know a few weeks old but is bound to get more interesting, is California legislature passing the law that's allowing uh, students to profit off or to get paid off of um, their likenesses and being able to say they're a collegiate athlete when you're working at clinics and stuff like that and kind of maybe a, a backdoor end around um, against the NCAA allowing payers to get players to get paid for their labor and it is actually sparking a bit of a debate now and I think the the injury concerns with football we just had um I forget where he played, but he uh, there was a, a collegiate football player who got another concussion and basically said, I'm done. Uh, I'm, I'm done playing football. I uh, can't do this anymore. And so realizing the physical toll that collegiate sports takes on athletes' bodies and not just football, basketball, gymnastics, what? like all of these things that are, I mean, look at women's basketball. Like it, it, it costs you your body to do these things. And that, that acknowledgement is slow in coming. And then the second part of that is, okay, what kind of compensation do you get? So I'm hopeful that maybe this summer when the news cycle is a little bit slower, we'll actually be able to have a much more robust debate about NCAA policy and finally, you know, allowing young people 
what they do to be seen as labor. Yeah. I think something maybe moving the needle on that issue tangentially, which I'd be excited to kind of dive into more in the future, was this op-doc released by the New York Times about Mary Kane and her experiences um, kind of working um, under the leadership of Nike mm -hmm. um, in her training and that to the extent that completely deteriorated oh, her body. Runner. Yeah, the runner. Yeah, yeah. And I think that's a very powerful testament. Kind of the key to moving the issue more forward is having more athletes coming out and speaking to their direct experience in a way that's digestible and understandable. Um, but e even you know. then, we'll talk much more about, this is something I've written about, uh, this is my dissertation and my book, <laughs> where I talk about the experience of athletes working in Hollywood, particularly USC players like John Wayne and Ward Bond. And other schools, this was the Pac-8 back then, they said they're making too much money, this is unfair. So they would actually force the studios to pay them less. So, you know, working as sort of day laborers to pay them less. So how that will change, where now they actually get paid not just sort of these jobs, but also sort of active labor and recognizing that sacrificing your body, they should be compensated. Mm -hmm. How that's going to change. I think it's a really, really interesting question. Yeah. Um, but with so many open-ended what-ifs, it'll yeah. be kind of amazing. Yeah. yeah. Speaking of what if the story I'm excited to dive into maybe next time is this um, completed gutting of Deadspin and also Sports Illustrated in many way. I'm in, been following closely where a lot of these writers are ending up and how um, you know with the death of Grantland and Deadspin these sites that had these very authentic editorial voices um, that really understood this pattern of what it means to talk about sports in a larger context. Um, how that kind of reshapes and remanifests moving forward about these sites as a platform. So um, obviously, I think there's a lot for us to talk about here. But uh, for now, um, unless there's any final thoughts, uh, I'm Mac Lederman with the Miscellany News. To my right, I have Professor Alex Kupfer from the Film Department. And to my left, I have Professor Justin Patch from the Music Department. We just spent a long time rambling about sports longer than these guys <laughs> ramble during their actual lectures. So I hope you stuck through yeah, us all the way to the end and we're excited to bring more episodes of Liberal Arts Sports Talk moving forward. Thank you very much.